Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Last week, we looked at the first half of this great chapter of the Old Testament, the, the highlight of the narratives in 1 and 2 Samuel. And this morning, we're going to look at the second half of this chapter. Last week, we saw God's incredible promise to David. Now this week we look at David's response to that promise. And so we pick up our text this morning in 2 Samuel 7 at verse 18. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely Authoritative. 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O oh Lord, we come before you, longing to know more of your word, longing to see you, O oh Lord, 
to recount your marvelous deeds. And so we ask this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in us a true and vibrant knowledge of your truth. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. It has been some time since I have taken a cross-country trip in a car with my family, but these are the sorts of things that you do not forget quickly. I'm sure that many of you have taken such a trip, maybe even recently. And I know especially for the young people here amongst us, there is a line that is oft repeated by them in the car. Are we there yet? Have we arrived? Is it over? You see, you know you're going to get to the destination. But you can't quite see how it's going to happen in the midst of this long and often mundane drive with the same kind of scenery out the windows. You almost wonder if you're making any progress. The Christian life can be like that. We live and we go about our ways we have the promises of God given to us that culminate in the promise that Jesus will return and bring us to himself and that we will dwell forever with the Lord. But we're tempted at times to say, are we there yet? I can't quite see the finish line. We wonder how the promise is going to come true. This chapter this morning gives us a picture of how we are to respond to the promises of God, especially when they don't seem as near to fulfillment as we want them to be. We're continuing this morning in one of the greatest chapters in all of the Old Testament, even in all of the Bible, 2 Samuel 7, where God gives this tremendous promise to David. And as we learned last week, that promise comes to you and to me also in Jesus Christ, of a kingdom that has no end, of a throne that is eternal, of a descendant of David who will reign forever and ever. Amen. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, in this second half of the chapter, we see David's response to this tremendous promise. Because David and Israel both have rest now from their enemies. And David, we saw, did not want to dwell in a house while God dwelt in a tent. And he wanted to build God a temple. But God reminded David that he has always dwelt with his people. And that he's the one giving grace to them. And if I can summarize it, God says to David, You want to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. A house that's eternal. David's response here this morning is a model for us as to how we should receive God's word and how great his promises are. And so this morning I'd like us to see two things from our text. First, we see that David gives praise to the God of grace. Second, we see that David gives prayer to the God of grace. And these two things are connected David's praise leads to prayer. And David 
grounds his prayers in who God is and what he has done, the subject of his praise. Let's begin then by looking at praise for the God of grace. And we begin with seeing praise for what God has done. So David begins here, as you recall, going back to verse 1 of chapter 7. David is sitting in his palace. The word there that is used in our translation is the king lived in his house. But this is a Hebrew word that can also be translated sit, to sit, to dwell, to spend a period of time, hence to live. And David wants God to dwell in a house. He wants God to be established and sit. But now, after hearing from the Lord, in verse 18, we see that King David went in and sat before the Lord. It's the exact same verb. David is now sitting before God. We don't know exactly what that means, but it's likely that David went down to the tabernacle and set himself up a place where he could sit and dwell on God and speak to the Lord and pray. Not unlike often in our day and age that people, when they have a, a burden, like to come to a church to pray. You don't need to be in a church to pray, but oftentimes we want to feel a closeness to God. And so that's what David is doing. David wants to be in the presence of this marvelous God who has given such great promises. Now I want you to notice how David comes. He doesn't come with demands. He doesn't come with an expectation of what God has to do for him. No, he comes and he sits and he says, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you should possibly make these promises to me? This gives us insight into a man after God's own heart. Because it's far too common today for people to demand what they think they deserve. It's so common today for someone to start a new job and three months in say, where's my promotion? I want my raise. And I want less work. And I want people to help me. It's common for people to demand things from their school. How could a professor give me anything less than an A? I deserve an A. Everyone deserves an A. We even have demands in our family. This is one of the plagues of our modern society. And that even among spouses, we demand things of our spouse. We want them to do for us. We want them to treat us a certain way. And often we can even hold back our own generosity and grace until we feel we've received enough from the other. This is the culture in which we live and move. But it's not the way of the follower of the Lord. David begins not with an expectation or a demand, but with wonder. Wonder at how he could be so blessed. Who am I, he says, I don't deserve this. And you see, David understands grace. By definition, grace is undeserved. And so, if you are here this morning and you have a tendency or a temptation to think that you deserve something from God, that God owes you a good job, that God owes you a happy family, 
that God owes you peace and quiet in our nation, then you don't understand grace. Because God doesn't owe you or me anything. Everything that we have from God is by grace. The problem is that we get so much from God that we fail to appreciate it. My guess is that you didn't wake up this morning wondering if there would be enough air to breathe. And yet if God did not give it to you, there would not be. If God did not send the sun to light the earth, we would be here in darkness. All that we get each and every day is from the grace of God. Now, it is hard for us to think this way because as we interact with others, our temptation is to think in contractual terms. I'll do this for you, and then you do this for me. That's the way we operate not only in business, but often in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our families. And our temptation is to think, we will do for God, and then God will do for us. But that's not the way of the Lord. That's not the way of grace. And if we were wise, we would realize that that would be the worst possible thing that could happen to us. You don't want justice. You want grace. You want overflowing grace that comes from the hand of Jesus Christ. And so David's wonder here is based on what God has already done. God has reminded him in verse 8 of all that he has done. David says, it's not just who am I and who, what is my house. He says, look how far you have brought me in verse 18. God told him, he brought him up from the pasture to the throne. That he has settled Israel. That he has placed David on the throne. And so God's reminder of his past grace causes David to be humbled and thankful. That's why over and over again in our text, David refers to himself as God's servant. He sees himself in light of God's blessings, not in light of others around him. Nine times David calls himself the servant or the slave of God. How different our lives would be if we responded to God's promises, not with anxiousness or entitlement, but instead with thanksgiving, knowing that God has blessed us immensely. Now, David realizes that God is even greater than that. Look at verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. What is that small thing? What has God done? Well, he saved David from death and danger for 10 years. If God had saved your life, you wouldn't consider that to be a tiny thing, would you? We consider it to be a great thing if God makes us healthy when we're sick, or if we're in the hospital, or he carries us through an operation. But for 10 years, David was at death's door, hunted by Saul unable to settle down, and God had brought him through that. But more than that, God had brought him from humble beginnings to the throne. And he had given him victory and peace and settled all of Israel. But all of this was a small thing, David says. Because God is not done with David yet. 
He's not just the God of past grace, but he's the God of future grace. Because what God has promised to David is also for a great while to come, David says. The distant future is in view. A future so distant, David can't even see it clearly. As great as the promise is for David, that is only a part of God's greater plan. Because God's promise, his greater plan, has landed here today in Katy, Texas. You have that promise that God has given. That the throne of David's greater son will be eternal. That it will never perish. We are the recipients of that promise. And David does not know our names. He didn't even know where we would live. But he knew that God's plan and purpose was not limited to him and his household, but to all of humanity. That's what David means when he says here in verse 19, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. This word instruction here is a Hebrew word that you probably know well. It is the word Torah. We often translate it law because that's how it's used. The law of God, the Torah of God. But here it means more than, strictly speaking, the laws that God gives. It also means instruction, guidelines, a way of life. One commentator calls it the charter of mankind. God has drawn up the charter for all of mankind, and on that charter is writ in large letters, grace. And underneath it, my promises. You receive them here now. It's the establishment of the kingdom by which all humanity will be blessed. Do you see that God's promises are bigger than you? That you're a part of a bigger picture? That God's blessing is more than just for your immediate needs? That God is establishing an eternal kingdom? And that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, that you are a part of that kingdom. And that you are a recipient of that promise. Well, David also praises God not only for what he has done, but for who he is. And this is not surprising, because what God has done is rooted in his character. God is the great promise keeper. And God has not done this because of anything that he found in David or in Israel. David tells us in verse 21 that it is only because of God's own will that he gives these promises. Look at verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart. It's as if David said, and in accordance with your will, or if we were to use a Pauline phrase, in accordance with your good pleasure. God is the genesis of the promise. And so David says, what more can I say to you? There's no other explanation for me receiving this promise. It's only because of who you are, God, and how good you are, and how gracious you are, that this promise comes to me. See, God is not waiting to see if David is worthy of the promise. God brings about the promise because of who he is. 
according to his will. Do you see that this is who God is? That he promises blessing because he delights to do so? That he fulfills his promises based on his knowledge, on his character? That it never depends on us. All we can do is look at God, the God of grace, in wonder. Now this leads us to where we should be. David's conclusion from seeing the God of promise is that there is none like God, in verse 22. There is none like you, and there is no God besides you, David says. God is great because of who He is. Now this is interesting because David describes God as the one who brings about His greatness because of His will. And that's what makes God great. So what we need to see here is that God is the standard for greatness. He doesn't have to measure up. He, we don't get to judge God. No, we stand in awe of the Lord who not only determines His blessings and promises, but He speaks them to us. And so both David and we know that there is none like God. There is no alternative, no substitute. You can't just dial up another God to worship and to serve. No one else is worthy. There is no other God. You can't pick and choose which God you think serves you best. There is only this great promise-keeping God. And we know this because God has spoken. Look at the end of verse 22. There is none like you according to all that we have heard with our ears. That is why the Bible is so important. It is the record of God's faithfulness and promises to us. We know who God is because we have heard it with our own ears. We have read it with our own eyes. God has declared it in His eternal Word. And He tells us that He is the Redeemer God. We see this in verses 23 and 24. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people? Now, at first... This sounds like praise for Israel. Who is like that people of Israel? But we need to look at this closely. There is no nation like Israel. But that's only because she has a God like God. What makes Israel unique is that God went to redeem her. And God has made his name great by his work of redemption. It's not just that Israel is redeemed from slavery. No, no, they now belong to God. Verse 24, you, O Lord, became their God. This explains to us how we are to live after coming to Jesus by faith. We are redeemed from sin and death. And we belong to God. We live for His glory. We obey His commands, not because that is how we are saved, but because we are saved. 
We are not only saved from something, we are saved to someone. Do you know this God of grace? Have you heard what he's done? Even the youngest amongst us should have. If you know him, you will have great confidence in his promises. You will praise him for who he is. So how do we respond when we are in need? This is where praise turns to prayer. And we begin by praying the promises of God back to Him. We have the promises of God. But you and I both know that doesn't mean that everything is perfect in this life. We still live in a world stained by sin. We still fall short of God's calling upon our lives. We have heartache, pain, sickness. David's life is a testimony to that. After this point, as we continue on in this book of 2 Samuel, we will see that David's life is far from perfect. But when praise leads to prayer, then we are on solid ground. And our prayers are based on God's promises. See how David transitions to prayer in verse 25. He says, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. David has rehearsed everything that God has done, all that God is, and now, Lord, based on that, based on everything God has done, based on who God is, here is now what I'm going to ask, David says. And what does he pray for? Does he pray for new blessings? Does he pray for ease and comfort? No. He prays that God's word would be forever confirmed. That word confirmed means established. It also means to stand upon something. Do you remember the old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God? That's what David is saying here. He is taking his stand, or perhaps more strictly speaking from our text, he is sitting and dwelling on the promises of God. See, David knows how to pray successfully. And that is not to name and claim what he wants from God, as if somehow God was obliged to him or owed him. No. Successful prayer is to repeat back to God what he has promised and to say, Lord, do what you have said. That's what David says here in verse 25. It sums up his prayer. Do you know the promises that God has made to you? This is one of the most important reasons why you should read and study your Bibles. Because the better you know your Bibles, the more comforted you will be by what God has promised. The more familiar you will be with the promises of God. And so, do what you have promised is the heart of prayer. God has promised to forgive the sins of everyone who believes in Jesus. He has promised to prepare a place for them. He has promised never to leave them nor to forsake them. 
He has promised to give them peace. And that promise can be for you right now. All you must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those promises of peace, of fellowship, of a place, of forgiveness, they are yours, not because you deserve them, but because God has promised them. Now, when we pray the promises of God back to Him, we then have confidence in our prayer life because the fulfillment of these promises depends not on us, but on the Lord. It is not biblical for you to pray, God, I will do this for you, and then you should do that for me. No, the great prayers of the Bible all have one thing in common, declaring the greatness and the power of God. Think about Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Think about Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance from the Assyrians. Think about Daniel's prayer of repentance. All of them plead God's character and his promises back to him. And so here in David's prayer, we are especially reminded of where our confidence comes from. Look with me at verse 27. The last sentence reads, Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Yes, I am going to say it. When we see a therefore in the text, what do we do? We look back to see what the therefore is there for. And the therefore points us back to the first sentence of verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. What David is saying is, I have courage in prayer because God, you have given me your promise. I can have boldness. I'm not hesitating it. David brings God's promises back to him. He notes this is how God's name is made great, that God is renowned throughout the earth as the promise-keeping God. And when we have an instance of God keeping His promise to us, we declare His goodness and His glory. So the boldness of David, you can have. God has revealed His promise to David, and that caused him to have courage But that is also a courage that we can have because we have the promises of God. It's not presumption. David doesn't worry about if his prayer is too big. He has every right to pray that God would keep his word and every right to expect that God will. Are you caught in praying tiny prayers? Because you're afraid to ask too much of God. Do you pray for revival? In America. And by revival, I don't just mean that 5% more people would attend church. I mean that you would go out to the store and people would walk through the aisles of the grocery store singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That you would go to school and teachers would pray for students. And the Bible would be read and studied and examined. That our government would seek to follow God's law. Do you pray these kind of big prayers, or you just hope that the church can hang on by its fingernails till Jesus comes back? Do you long that all of the places where Christians are oppressed, China, India, Afghanistan, 
Nigeria, would become bastions of the gospel. That they would send missionaries out to other nations. You see, God's given us these promises that the name of Jesus Christ will spread throughout all of the earth. And we have experience with God doing this. We have several revivals in our nation. The most Presbyterian nation in the world that sends missionaries places Americans can't go. China, Iran, Pakistan. is a place called Korea. It was not so long ago that Korea was a pagan bastion and the name of Jesus was not heard there. But Christians prayed and they went and they spread the gospel and they prayed God's promises back to him and God is and was at work. Do not limit your prayers by what you think God can do. Plead his promises back to him. God's words are always true, and therefore we can claim the blessing that God says is ours. Can you imagine David having the audacity in verse 29 to say, My kingdom, make it last forever, God. That would be foolhardy, except that God has already promised to do that. And so David is perfectly in line with God's will in praying that way. There is no one like God. Only God makes promises that are always right and true. Only God has the power to keep all of his promises. He never falls short. What more could you ask for? You have promises that come from the ever-true, all-powerful, all-loving God of grace. You never have to worry or wonder. When God says, so be it, it is. Is there any more practical way for you to live your life? What is keeping you from living by trusting God and by praying His promises back to Him? Go to Him now. Know that His promises are reliable and that they are sure to be granted. Let's pray.